Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We have one of the most trenchant parshas in the entire Torah here, because basically this is the beginning of the Jewish people falling apart. We've got the whole family sort of imploding. And so this is, this is meaningful because we've got to figure out why this is happening and, and how we can stop it today, since whatever's going on in the Parsha is going on in the world. And the Torah is always addressing reality as it's unfolding. So let's, let's figure out what kind of practical things that we can figure out and also what sort of like larger philosophical things is leading toward this division and what we can do with the brokenness on a practical level. And maybe even more significantly, what is the philosophy of brokenness itself? Why is there so much brokenness? What's our responsibility vis-a-vis the fact that we experience that in our lives. Now, when the Parsha begins, it begins with Yaakov doing something so human and so understandable, so utterly sympathetic, and that is he just wants some peace. He just wants peace. Now, just remember what's been going on in his life, just to set the scene for a moment. He's escaped from his brother who wants to kill him. He's gone into this intolerable situation, the house of Levin. Remember, Kabbalistically speaking, we say that the energy of Levin, that Levin is the reincarnation of the Nachash, the snake, from the Garden of Eden. So he's going into really the headquarters of negativity. Like if you can get more negative than Asav, somehow this is that. And he has to somehow forge a family in that environment and leave with it intact which he's successful in doing. And then he faces his brother who's waiting for him with an army of 400 men to kill him and his family. So somehow he escapes that with God's help. And now the Parsha tells us that Yaakov, Jacob, settled in the land of his father. And God says back to him, Wait a second, I don't understand. It's not enough that you have the next world and all the tranquility that awaits you in the next world? You're trying to have that in this world too? Like God says, so to speak, I don't get it. (laughs) And then we're like, what do you mean you don't get it, God? How can you not get that? But somehow there's this disconnect between our desire for tranquility and our life in this world. This question is something that's confounded people forever. And it's because most of us are operating with the following mathematical formula, which is me, I'll use the word me, but I mean all of us, me plus Righteousness equals tranquility. I'll say that one more time. Me plus righteousness equals tranquility. 
Now, if you drew that formula on the blackboard and I were the professor, I would walk up, whisper something reassuring in your ear, and then put a big X through it. <laughs> because that's not, that's not reality. That's not reality. And that's what God means when he says to Yaakov in the Medrash, you have the next world. You, you have this ultimate, ultimate tranquility, ultimate bliss, beyond, 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 beyond bliss awaiting you. And you want it in this world too. So the first thing that we have to understand is this world is called Olam Hasiyah, which means the world of action. Which means that as long as we're in this world, we're expected to act and do something. So the idea that we finally can retire, right? We finally got to that place where the savings are just enough that we can get through without doing any work. And then, of course, if you're very aspirational, you read stories about people retiring at 30, or you know what I mean, like internet successes, or back in the day of crypto, like two weeks ago, you know? <laughs> so, you know, you could make a, a fortune and then you're on easy street. No, no, that's, that's never been actual reality. And, you know, I'll, I'll quote an eminence, Bette Mittler. <laughs> I believe it was her. I heard it in her name. But very wise words. You ready for this? You know, she, if you know anything about her career, those of you who aren't familiar with her, she was a, you know, a, at one point, one of the leading actresses, movie stars in the world. And she also had an incredibly successful singing career. But she really rose through the ranks. She really kind of had to work to become famous in sort of the clubs in New York. And so, so she had a chunk of her life where she wasn't a quote-unquote, you know, big star. And they asked her, so what's it like having gone through all that? What's it like to be super famous, right? Super successful. Listen to these words. She says, you know, it's just trading one set of problems for another set of problems. And there's giant wisdom in that because we think that cash is our trampoline, right? Is our pole vault to leapfrog over the problems of this world. And it's, it's fiction. It's total fiction. In other words, as long as we're in this world, we're going to face challenges. Now, they may not be the type of challenges like, how do I scrape together enough for rent? Or to make my payroll? Or whatever it is. They may not be those problems anymore. But th there will be problems. Now, now, why are there going to be problems? Why not get to the point where I achieve this level where there are no more problems confronting me anymore? Because there's a larger narrative going on. There's a larger purpose going on. In other words, God is not trying to confound us. Now, I heard something. Um, this apparently is, is true. The, the writer... Matthew Carlson, he wrote a book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, which is a very nice self-help book. 
he, he brings this idea, which I, I, I love, I love. If, if you know the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, first of all, it's, it's extraordinary, it's beautiful. It's like a giant work of art. It's, a, it's beautiful, you know, just to look at it. And it's got this, this I don't know whether it's this type of red. I don't, I don't know what the exact color is, but it's, the color is great. But because of the elements and the, the, the fog and, and everything else, it's, it's really eligible or prone to rust. So here's the fact, something very interesting. They start painting the Golden Gate Bridge, and when they get to the end of painting it, they start going back and repainting it. In other words, the painting of the Golden Gate Bridge never ends because it's constantly rusting. And that's a, that is a teaching for all of us, meaning to say it's just, it's the work and the challenges of this world are an ongoing process. And that doesn't come from our failure. See, that's, that's the thing that we've got to hammer into our heads. Because we think we're so married to this idea that me plus righteousness equals tranquility. <laughs> that if I'm not in that state of total tranquility or in a state of absence of challenge, then I'm doing something wrong. No, you're not doing anything wrong. Just by virtue, in this, by virtue of the fact that you're alive in this world, you will confront those challenges. That's just the nature of life in this world. Okay, so now... Let's go deeper into this idea. We're still on the same subject, but I'm just going to switch the entry point into this discussion. But we're still on the same topic. And I told you that basically the family of Israel is falling apart in front of our eyes in this week's Parsha. And that's the challenge between Yosef and the brothers and the fact that the brothers want to kill Yosef and instead settle on selling him into slavery. And then that sets a whole story into place where Yosef not only saves the family, but saves the entire world. So God is guiding even this conflict, even this turmoil, even the seeming wrongdoing on our part. God is using that as a way in order to bring about a larger reality, which is the salvation of the entire world including the salvation of the Jewish people who are part of the world and get to survive as a consequence of this. So it's, it's just amazing that even amidst the turmoil and, and the crises, God's hand never stops guiding the world towards salvation. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. So even when we're getting it wrong, God is getting it right. <laughs> So that's reassuring on some level, but we want to do it in the optimal way. In other words, you can get from one side of the country to the other side of the country, but you can be in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic the entire time, right? Or as I heard one traffic announcer put it, bummer-to-bummer -bummer traffic, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you can do it that way, or you can be, you can be on a 747, so obviously, there are different levels of how we want to realize the destiny of the world, and we want to do it through the fast track. 
That's, that's optimal. Why should there be suffering in the world when, when it's limited and it's going to end anyway? Why shouldn't we be agents toward ending it as soon as possible for the sake of all of humanity, including ourselves? We can do that. Okay. So now with this in mind, let's get into the struggle among the Jewish people. And really, it begins with seemingly the favoritism of Yaakov and Yosef. You've got the 12, Yaakov, who's the revered father, right? The culmination of Abraham and Yitzchak in, in one person. You know, they, they all want to be beloved. By the way, Rashi brings something very interesting, which is that it says that Yaakov loved Rachel the most, right? And it seems like that was a fairly emotionally traumatic thing for Leah. So Rashi points out that Leah was loved. She was loved. It's just that he loved Rachel more. So that's an amazing insight, by the way, in terms of human nature, which is that you can be genuinely loved, but if you see someone being loved more, you feel unloved. Isn't that interesting? Especially in terms of the male-female dynamic, right? So it's tragic. I love you, but I don't feel it. But I love you. I actually do love you but I don't feel it. That's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking when both things can be true. So we're talking about love and feeling unloved. And we've got this situation now replicating with the children. It was with the parents, with the mothers, and now you see it among the children. But now it's becoming a little bit more overt because Yaakov is, is learning one-on-one -on -one with Yosef and he's giving over all of the secrets of Torah to Yosef. It says, Ele todos Yaakov Yosef. Those are the words in the Torah. So these are the generations of Yaakov, and then the next word is Yosef. Yaakov Yosef. And so in that way, you see the Torah is hinting at the fact that Yaakov was giving over the fullness of what he knew to Yosef. And in fact, Yaakov Yosef is a very revered name. A lot of great people have the name Yaakov Yosef. And it comes from, this is the source of it, right? And now it becomes even more manifest because he gives Yosef what's known popularly as the coat of many colors. Now remember, dye, D-Y-E, dye, was very, very expensive. I'm just giving you just a little historical note here. Like, for instance, royalty wore purple. One of the reasons why they wore purple was because purple dye was rare and exceedingly expensive. If you had clothes with these very rich colors, especially back in ancient days, this was very costly, extremely expensive. If I'm walking around in like a purple like rich dyed garment, that would be like driving a Bentley today, right? Like, here I am. You know, you want to take a selfie in front of it? You can, just don't touch it, okay? Just, you know, you know, admire from afar. <laughs> 
So now imagine what a coat of many colors must have looked like. That must have been extraordinary. So the brothers are naturally feeling excluded or unloved, even though you can guarantee that Yaakov loved all of them. But if they see so much love going in one place, they feel unloved. Now, with that as the background and understanding the greatness of who Yosef was, I have a question. Here's my question. How can it be that Yosef has this dream? I mean, we know that he has the dream because it has a prophetic quality to it. He has this dream that he's going to rule over his brothers. He has this dream that they're all with the sheaves of wheat and that Yosef's sheave rises up and all the other sheaves of the other brothers bow down. And Yosef says, hear please my dream and tells them the dream. Now given what the climate was emotionally speaking, in the family, my question is, how could Yosef have told them about his dream? Why did he do that? Because on a simple level, it seems like he was putting out fire with gasoline, right? If you want to put out a fire, (laughs) you don't put it out with gasoline. That makes the fire bigger. If he understands that there's tension among the brothers already, how is he making things better by telling them, oh, no, no, it's all okay because I'm your ruler? (laughs) Like, how does that make things better? Okay, you hear the question. So I want to give an answer. So what occurs to me is that he was actually trying to reassure them by telling them Every community, every tribe, every company has a leader. And it's God's will that I should be the leader. So it's not me trying to wrest control from you. This is a prophecy that I had. I'm reassuring you that this is the natural order of the way that it's supposed to be. Now listen to what the Ishbitzer says. The Ishbitzer says the brothers had their own take because it says in the Talmud, there's a whole section on dream interpretation, by the way, in Gomorrah Bruchus. And it says that an amazing psychological insight, which is ancient now, this is coming from the Talmud. If you're thinking about something, they, the, the Talmud wants to know what dreams are considered significant, meaning that there's a little taste of prophecy to them, and what dreams are considered insignificant. And so they discuss this. And one of the things that they say is, if you're thinking about something during the day, and then you dream about it at night, that would be considered an insignificant dream, because it's just a reflection of your thoughts during the day. Now, with that in mind, listen to what the Ishbitzer says. An amazing, like, he's going to go like a bullseye right here. He says, the brothers thought, do you know why you're having dreams about dominating us? Because that's what you think about all day, Yosef. Wow. 
That's like a knockout punch, right? It's like a knockout punch. And again, do you see the tragedy of the lack of communication? How two people can be totally sincere on both sides and yet they still clash? This is heartbreaking. This is the brokenness that's in the world right now. Two sincere people. So this is the world that we live in. Okay. So I want to go deeper. Because it looks like Yosef wants to dominate the tribes. That's certainly their perception. But I want to give a different answer and go much deeper right now. You see, the truth is that Yosef wasn't the ultimate ruler of the tribes. He really wasn't, according to every account. It was Yehuda. And in fact, Mashiach, King David, the Messianic line, goes from Yehuda, not Yosef. And even Yaakov blesses Yehuda, not Yosef, with rulership among the tribes of Israel. And so the brothers hear Yosef saying, I'm your ruler, and this is not my idea, says Yosef. This is what is coming down from above. And the brothers are like, hmm. And some deep level, maybe they're conscious of it, maybe they're not even conscious of it at all. But on some deep level, the brothers are going, hmm, I don't think so. This doesn't sound right. All right, so now we're ready for the next step. Among the teachings that I heard from Reb Shlomo over a period of being with him of approximately 18 years, this is a teaching that he would say many, many times. This is maybe one of the teachings, maybe the teaching that I heard from him the most. So I'm, I'm giving you that as a preface because it, it shows you how central this teaching was in terms of his understanding. And it's the following. Who is Mashiach descended from? Now, from the person who never made a mistake ever or from the person who makes mistakes and then fixes them? Now, if you were to ask me, I would say Mashiach descends from the one who never makes a mistake. That would be my answer. And yet the Torah says something completely different. The Torah says Mashiach descends from the one who makes mistakes and then does everything that they possibly can to fix them. And that's the difference between Yosef, who's the one who never makes a mistake, and Yehuda, who makes mistakes and fixes them. And now I want to get cosmic with you, okay? Now we're just going to pull back the lens like way, way back to the beginning of creation. And I'm going to show you that this idea is rooted in the fabric of the universe and the fabric of creation itself, okay? Now... One of the basic questions of, that Kabbalah seeks to answer is how did the infinite create the finite? 
Now that's interesting on a number of levels because you're right. If it's infinite, how can it ever be finite? And then there's a second question, which is how does the finite continue to exist in the presence of the infinite? Because the infinite should blow away and vaporize anything finite before it. So it's really a two-pronged question. And this is one of the questions that Kabbalah answers. So in terms of the creation of the world itself, that's a process called simsum, which is God takes an aspect of his light, not all of his light, the outer garment of his light. God has no physicality whatsoever. God takes an aspect of his light and he contracts and condenses that light until it becomes the physical universe. And then he fills the physical universe while existing dimensions beyond the physical universe simultaneously. Okay? So there's a key moment in terms of the contraction of the light where the light now needs to create a vessel to hold the light above it. So that's a very key stage in terms of the creation of the world where the light now needs a vessel. Ultimately, the world itself is going to be the vessel. Okay, but you're going to have the roots of vessels leading up to the ultimate vessel, which is going to be called Malchus, which is this dimension that we're in right now. This world, like if you ever see the, a chart of the 10 sphere road, on the bottom is Malchus. That's where we live. That's the ultimate vessel holding all the upper light. Okay, very good. But there's going to be that initial stage in the creation of the world where that first vessel is going to need to be created. Now, by the way, it's such an exalted vessel at that early stage in terms of the flowing down of the light that that vessel is also going to be made out of light because it's such an exalted vessel. It's so high up in the heavens. Now, what happens is when that first vessel is made, you have this cosmic event called Shvirus Hakalin called the shattering of the vessels. That event is reverberating throughout the universe, throughout our lives, till this day, in different forms. There are correlations between that and the Big Bang, in terms of the creation of the universe. We're talking about a brokenness that's implanted into the fabric of the universe that includes everything from the eating of the fruit from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. That's an echo of the shattering of the vessels. The shattering of the luchos, the tablets, after the worship of the golden calf. That's an echo of the of shvirus hakelim, of the breaking of the vessels. The separation in our own lives between our hearts and our minds. That's a reverberation of the shattering of the vessels of our body and soul. See, I'll tell you something unbelievable. This is from the Pia Sesna Rebbe, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto. And 
he asks an incredible question. He says, is your body a covering over your soul? Or is your body an extension of your soul? <laughs> I'm going to say that again, because this is, if you only leave this talk with one idea, make it this, okay? It's a question to ask yourself all the time, all of the time, right? You want to stop overeating? I do. Do you want to get out of bed when you open up your eyes? I do. Let me tell you a little rocket fuel that will help you with all of these things. You ask yourself this question. Is my body a covering over my soul? Or is my body an extension of my soul? Because if I open up my eyes in bed and I just want to lie there. And by the way, I've done this. I've asked myself the question in bed when I've opened my eyes. Is my body a covering over my soul? Or is my body an extension of my soul? And it's gotten me out of bed. But just like, I, I say to myself, no, my, my body is an extension of my soul, and I'm out of bed. Right? There have been times, I don't want to say I do this all the time, I don't want to lie to you, but I'm just telling you this is real. There have been times where I'm walking in the kitchen and I just want to grab something and put it in my mouth, and I've asked myself, is my body a covering over my soul, or is my body an extension of my soul? If my body is an extension of my soul, what am I just putting something in my mouth for if I'm not even hungry? So the shattering of the vessels is addressing every aspect of the brokenness of this world. Now, we have a big question now. We have a big, big giant question. God is perfect. If God is perfect, which he is, What's the deal with the shattering of the vessels? What is it? He didn't like fine tune the, you know, like, oh, I put too much light. Ah, I got distracted. Right? The, the heavenly angels were singing my favorite song, you know? I looked away. And then I, you know, I left the, the vessels in the oven a little too long, you know? They like, they shattered. So, so clearly none of those things are the case which means that there was no mistake made at all by God. The next step in the perfect creation of the world was now the, sh now the vessels are going to break. But why would that be a step in the perfect creation of the world? And here's the answer. Because God envisioned from the very beginning, not the creation of the world. God envisioned from the very beginning the creation of the human being. The whole world is here to house the human being. And what did God want that human being to do? to take broken pieces and put them together. In other words, that is our job. There have to be broken pieces in order for us to do our job, which is to put together broken pieces. 
to participate and to be partners with God in terms of the creation of the world. Let me put it another way. Everyone's played Monopoly. So if you want to play Monopoly, you need a game piece. So this person gets a wheelbarrow, and this person gets a top hat, and this person gets a little race car, right? And again, if you don't have a game piece, you're not in the game. So what's our game piece? You get broken pieces, and you get broken pieces, and I get broken pieces, and you get broken pieces. Everybody gets broken pieces. And that's the sign that you're in the game. That's a sign that you're in this world. And now, put together the broken pieces. And now, we can revisit our first question. Yaakov says, I've been through so much. All I want is a little serenity. All I want is a little serenity. And God says, what are you talking about? I mean, I don't even begin to understand what you're saying. <laughs> as long as you're in this world, your game piece, along with everyone else's game piece, to the last breath is broken pieces. And so when the brothers hear that Yosef says, I am your ruler, and from Yosef's point of view, he's trying to reassure them He's trying to say, don't be jealous, you know. Yes, I'm learning with my father. And yes, I've got this code and everything like that. But it's okay, it's cool, because this is God's plan. He's got a structure, and I'm at the top of it. And the brothers are going, mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. This doesn't sound right. Why? Because, again, I'm not saying this was conscious, but they understood on a deep soul level that the rulership is from someone who's going to fix all the broken pieces, someone who makes mistakes themselves. Not Yosef. Yehuda. It's going to be from Yehuda. And that that syncs with the ultimate plan, which is bringing order into this world, which is what we do when we perform Torah and mitzvahs. When we learn Torah, when we do mitzvahs, we radiate harmony and tikkun, fixing, into the world. That's what's going on. That's why the Torah and the mitzvahs are so powerful. Because they're going to fix the root of the brokenness of the fabric of the universe. Now, how do we do it? How do we do it? So I want to tell you some teachings because Yosef is having dreams. The word in Hebrew for dreams is chalom. Now, it's three letters, chalom, in Hebrew. If you rearrange those three letters for dream, do you know what it spells? Lechem, which means bread. Isn't that interesting that the word, right? It's almost like two sides of a spectrum. Like, their dreams are the most ethereal thing in the world. Bread is the most... The staff of life, right, is what bread is called. Bread is like 
the most concrete thing in the world. You need bread to live. But guess what? You also need dreams to live. And that's why it's the same word. Because we need our dreams to live. Dreams are our bread. Now listen to this. The Pischei Sharon brings the Medrash Tanchuma. Because how do we get through all the darkness? So this is the darkest time of the year right now. Right? This is the end of the year, December, right? Kislev, Teves. This is the darkest time of the year. Now the Sefer Yetzirah, and that's, that's like one of the primary mystical books among the Jewish people, right? And there's a debate. Who wrote the Sefer Yetzirah? So I'm aware of three opinions. One opinion is Adam Harishon, the very first person. The second opinion is Abraham Avinu. The third opinion is Rabbi Akiva. Do you know what I, do you know what I personally understand from those three answers? It doesn't matter who wrote the Sefer Yetzirah. <laughs> That's what I think. That's saying. If those are your three candidates, it doesn't matter. What it's saying is wherever this book comes from, it's the highest, holiest source. Right? Or among them. Right? Of course, the Torah is the highest, but still you get the idea. The Sefer Yetzirah says each month of the year has a fixing. Do you know what the fixing of Kislev, the month of Hanukkah, what we're in right now is? Right? The darkest time? Sleep. We have to fix sleep. And you know, we're always reading about dreams. Dreams and sleep are kind of like one and the same almost. So with that in mind, I want to tell you something about darkness, about sleep, Right? About Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah is the light in the darkness. So the Pischei Sharem brings the Medrash Tanchuma, who says, do you know what the very first moment is for a soul that's born into this world? The very first moment. The very first thing that happens is that the soul is brought up to the Garden of Eden to experience the bliss of the Garden of Eden. That is the very first thing that a soul experiences. And then it's sort of like laser shot into the fetus. And the Pischei Sharm says something so dramatic. Let me just set it up with the following. <clears throat> In Pirkei Avos, it says that if you were to take all the pleasures of your life, right, every pleasurable moment you ever had in your life, and you rolled it all up into one big, giant ball of pleasure. One moment in the next world outweighs the entirety of your experience of pleasure in this world. So with that in mind, the fact that the first experience of the soul is the bliss of the Garden of Eden and then it goes down into a body. The Pischei Sharm says the following, that those moments that the soul experiences enables the person, even though they forget about all this, enables a person to have free choice in this world. 
Okay, I'm going to explain that. Because in order to have free choice, there has to be an even balance. Meaning to say, maybe it's this way, maybe it's that way, but I'm going to choose the proper way. I'm going to choose the right way. That's, by the way, why God created the entire world. So that we would exercise our free choice. A, so that we should have free choice. That's why there's so much darkness in the world. That's why there's evil in the world. Just so that we can have the opportunity to have free choice. And then amidst that opportunity to choose the right thing. That's the whole reason for the existence of the world. Okay, that's one of them. The, the next reason is to lift up this world all the way up to beyond the dimensions of time and to inject infinity into the finite. But we'll save that for another time. <laughs> you can rewind that and listen to that last 10 seconds a few times if you want that thought. But anyway, the point is that the soul experiences the bliss of the Garden of Eden, then forgets about it, and then endures the darkness of this world for 70 or 80 or more years. And the person has free choice throughout. In other words, <laughs> this is the point. Can you imagine how powerful that experience that the soul has in the Garden of Eden must be that it can counteract 70, 80, thousands of years, historically speaking, of darkness, and that the soul remains alive and convinced and knowledgeable that it's just an illusion, the darkness, and it's just temporary, the darkness? Can you imagine the power of that light and that experience? That it outweighs all of the evil, all of the darkness, all of the suffering of this world? That's awesome. That's awesome. And now you can appreciate a little bit, just a little bit, what the sages are hinting at in Perke Avos when they say, if you roll up all the pleasures of your life into one big ball, one moment in the next world outweighs all of them. We've got some kind of perspective right now. Now, while we're in our mother's womb, an angel comes and holds a candle over our head and teaches us the entire Torah, and we forget it when we're born. So everyone's got the same question, which is, why teach it if we're going to forget it? Okay. Well, the simple answer is because it still leaves an impression on you, like we're talking right now. But the Pischei Sharm goes to a whole other question, like a question that would never even occur to me to ask. The Pischei Sharm asks, this Torah that you forgot in your mother's womb, where did it go? <laughs> like, what? What, did, what, what? What do you mean, where did it go? I forgot. No, no, no. Where did it go? What? Well, let's try to understand this a little bit better because it's going to lead us to something phenomenal, okay? You see, we say or Torah. Or Torah means the light of Torah. Light is divine energy, and the purest divine energy is Torah itself. 
Now, in physics, we have the law of the conservation of energy, which means if you have energy, energy doesn't just dissipate, energy goes someplace. So where does this pure light that this angel is teaching you, the Torah in your mother's womb, it exists, and if it's pure energy, it must go somewhere. So now this question, which seems so abstract a few seconds ago, makes perfect sense. So let's return to the question, where does it go? And he tells you where it goes. It goes up into the higher reaches of heaven. And it stays there and it waits for you. Now you ready for this? The Vilna Gon, no less than the Vilna Gon, brings that when you sleep, a part of your neshama goes up into Shemayim, goes up into heaven, and you're ready for this? Learns the Torah that you forgot that you were given and taught in your mother's womb. And then he says something even more incredible than that. He says, I saw it with my own eyes. I saw it with my own eyes. He says that you're capable of learning in one moment what it would take you 70 years, seven of 70 years to learn in this world. He says, but you don't get any reward for that Torah because it's just coming to you without work. And depending on how pure your soul is and how much you're working on yourself, that will dictate what you're able to receive when your soul goes up and how much you're able to retain when your soul returns. It's a meritocracy, depending on how much you purify your soul. Okay, now the Satmarebi is going to take it to the next level. He says, so an angel has a candle over your head while he's teaching it. That's, that's what it says in the Gomorrah. Gomorrah Nida, page 30, if you want to look it up. The Satmar Rebbe asks, where does that candle go? <laughs> wow. Right? I mean, how much do you love the Torah? That we're even asking these questions and that we have answers to these questions. How much do you love the Torah? He says, where does that candle go? He says, you know where that candle goes? That's the candle of Hanukkah. <laughs> and you get it back, and you get to light it. And he says, and that's why we're saying Hallel, which is the song of praise. We say Hallel all eight days of Hanukkah. Because you are celebrating the return of the Torah that you were taught in your mother's womb. Not because the Beis HaMikdash was reclaimed and purified, not because of the victory in the war, not because of the miracle of the light lasting eight days. I'm sure also for that. But for the fact that you are reconnecting with the Torah that you learned in your mother's womb. And my wife added, that's why it makes sense that according to certain traditions, everyone likes their own menorah. Because you want to connect with your candle. Isn't that something? And now we'll end with this thought. What is that candle? What is that Torah you're taught in your mother's womb? Because Reb Shlomo asks a fantastic question. Our tradition is that every soul 
that was ever going to be Jewish, including the souls of converts, all of them were present at Mount Sinai during the revelation of the Torah. All of them. If that's the case, if you already got the Torah, then what do you need to get the Torah again in your mother's womb? That's his question. Now listen to his answer, amazing answer. He says, at Mount Sinai, we got the national mission. In your mother's womb, you get your personal mission. What do you need to accomplish? What do you need to fix in this world? Which means that every time you go to sleep, you get reacquainted with your mission in this world. Right? Has, have you ever heard anyone say, hey, you look great. You go, oh, I got a good night's sleep. You know what that's code for on a soul level? I am reacquainted with what I'm supposed to do in this world. Even if you're not conscious of it, somehow intuitively that's been communicated to you. And that's the, that's the celebration of Hanukkah. Okay, so again, I want to be super practical and give you guys a couple of tools, very practical tools, since we're talking about how to maintain peace and how to bring our families, ourselves, like amidst the brokenness, how, how we can do this. And the first thing that I'm going to suggest to you is don't express opinions as facts. This is very, very important. And I'm going to explain what that means. Don't express opinions as facts. I'll give you a couple examples. Number one, how'd you like that movie? Oh, that movie is bad. Well, that's your opinion that it was bad, right? What do you mean it's bad? You're stating it as a fact. Someone cooks a dish. What do you think of the dish? Oh, this dish is bad. <laughs> what do you mean it's bad? You, you don't like it. I get that. But what do you mean it's bad? In other words, there's a certain arrogance to the way that we have become accustomed to expressing ourselves where we take our opinion and we make it like this is the truth. This is the truth. This is what it is. And my dad used to have an expression which I love, which is, he used to say, that's why they have menus in restaurants, because people like different things, right? Because if everyone liked the same thing, what do you need a menu for? Not only that, the Kutzka Rebbe says famously that you're not surprised when you meet someone who doesn't look like you, so why are you so surprised when you meet someone who doesn't think like you? Not only that, but I heard from Rabbi Cardozo that the 12 tribes represent 12 different distinct personalities. And we have to widen our consciousness, widen our souls, so that we make allowance and room for the fact that there are people who just see things differently. You know, you know the happy minion, we're, we're Idaman, here. It's like, we, what could be better than losing yourself in singing and dancing? Now, there are other communities where it's sort of like the idea is, let's wake up at the very first moment that we can pray and just get through the prayers, no singing, no dancing, and then we'll finish, and then maybe someone will give a really good Devar Torah or something like that. Now, 
you could say, what is the matter with you? You're supposed to be alive. You're supposed to celebrate. Like, what could be higher than music and, and everything like that? And, and now there's a judgment on the, on the other people. Or the other people are saying, wait a second, what are, you, what, what, are you, what are you drawing out the prayers forever for? I mean, give us a break. we got to get home already. Different personalities. Different personalities. People like different things. And you have to acknowledge the fact that that's the case. Now, once you acknowledge the fact that different people like different things, you're not just going to say, this dish is bad, this movie is bad. You're not just going to express your opinion like it's a fact. You're going to lower yourself. You're going to humble yourself. And you're going to say, I think this is not my taste. This is not what I personally prefer. When there's humility, when you're conscious of your words, when there's humility, there's peace because you make room for the other person, right? Because when you express your opinions as facts, if the other person doesn't agree with you, you're just pushing them aside like they don't exist, like they're wrong, like they're not entitled to have an opinion other than yours. That's called arrogance. That's called arrogance. But in order to do that, we have to be conscious of our words. And when you're conscious, where you say, my opinion, or if you, you want to know the way I see it, and then you express your opinion, you are consciously lowering yourself. And again, that's an act of humility, and that creates peace. Now, there's something else, another psychological insight that I want to share with you from, that I heard from Reb Shlomo, from Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. And Reb Shlomo said that Rebbe Nachman was the most psychologically astute of all the Rebbe's. And he also said that by the Rebbe's, they were like exquisitely sensitive. Exquisitely is my, is my word. But extraordinarily sensitive. So if, if all of them were extraordinarily sensitive, and yet, Rabbi Nachman, he said, was the most psychologically insightful. So this is an insight from Rabbi Nachman. He says, do you know when you begin to hate after you make a mistake? It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant insight into the human condition. When does a person begin to hate after they make a mistake. Do you know why? Because after a person makes a mistake, they're filled with turmoil. And they don't know what to do with that turmoil. And if they don't properly address it, they project that turmoil outward in the form of hate. That is an amazing, amazing diagnosis of the human condition. Amazing. You see, I'll put it another way, and I'll leave you with this thought. And how you answer this question is going to largely determine the life that you live in this world. And I'm not, I am not 
um, overstating it. Not if you make a mistake, but when you make your next mistake. What do you do when you become face-to-face with your own imperfection? Not if you make a mistake, when you make a mistake. How do you react when you become face-to-face with your own imperfection? And how you answer that question is largely going to determine how you live the rest of your life. Are you going to become angry at other people? Are you going to become violent? Are you going to be riddled with self-hatred? Are you going to justify yourself? Are you going to deny it? Or are you going to say, you know something, I made a mistake? Are you going to apologize? Because this is largely how we put together the broken pieces of this world. Because it's not just other people who are making mistakes, we're also making mistakes. And that's the beginning of addressing the putting together the broken pieces of this world. You know something? I don't know how I I got to do this. And I'm so happy that I do. I don't know how it happened. But at some point in my life, when I look at someone doing something wrong, right, what seems to me to be the wrong thing, a voice inside my head says, you do the same thing. And I have reacted when I've heard that voice inside my head. No, I don't. And you know what? If I think long enough, I absolutely can find an example of it where I've done the same thing. You know what the Rebbe say? If you didn't do it at some point in your life, you wouldn't have even have seen it in the other person. The only reason why you even observed it is because there's an element of it on some level, even if it's a trace element within you. Okay, so let's Dream good dreams. You know, Reb Shlomo says that when God gave us the Torah, he gave us the ability to dream his dreams and to pray his prayers. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.